thank you to the committee for inviting me to give this paper. Um, this is based around my PhD thesis, um, which essentially is focused on the philosophy of uh, Theodore Adorno, um, Frankfurt School critical theorist. Um, what I'm really trying to do is find a way to re-articulate the sort of social criticism um, that he did to give it a bit of a firmer basis and to make it relevant to some of the conversations that are happening today. Um, and the person who I'm choosing to try and do that through is Max Scheler, uh, also a dead German. Um, <laughs> neglected figure, I think he's got some interesting things to say, and I think he's got some interesting things to say that speak to Adorno in particular. Okay, so what am I going to do in this paper? Talk about the overall context of my research, I've done that, take that off. I'm going to go over a couple of problems um, that I've found in Adorno's work. I'm going to talk about Shader's philosophical anthropology, um, so some categories in there, life, resistance, spirit, personhood, action, and that's it. And I'm going to sort of try and bring it all together and talk a bit about that. Okay, so Adorno's problems. This isn't one of them. This is just a sort of justification for why I'm looking at Adorno. He offers a very powerful social critique. Okay, so what Adorno starts from is examining society as a totality. This is because he thinks society understands itself as a totality. We sort of think naturally that everything is in some sort of ordered systematic relationship to everything else. And we want to have that, but more so. So we want to build scientific systems in which everything has its place. We want to build social systems in which everything has its place as well. So when we're doing social theory, when we're doing social critique, what we really want to do is to understand that system as a system. Okay? We want to see how society thinks of itself, what society thinks it's doing, and find out what that means. And this gives us better access to the whole picture than other approaches. So look at zero hours contracts, maybe one person on a zero hours contract might have chosen to do that for <coughs> because it's good for them, but there's hundreds of thousands of people on them and there's hundreds of companies who only offer them. Maybe there's something else going on. So what we're also doing is criticizing the totality. We're critiquing the very idea of a totality. This is where this idea of identity thinking comes in. Adorno blames that for most things. Identity thinking is this idea, you find it in Hegel most particularly, that one day, or maybe now, our concepts about things match perfectly onto things themselves. So my concept of a computer monitor will one day be so good 
that you don't even need the object. Forget it. That's idealism. And that's the logic of Hegel's dialectic. You refine your concepts again and again until you hit this perfect, all-encompassing system which makes sense of it all. What Adorno says is that this is wrong. Actually, there's always something beyond the concept, any concept we use, no matter how good, which is going to escape that conceptualization. So we can talk about this in terms of universals and particulars. A concept is a universal. Okay? It talks about classes of things. So on a basic level, what it misses is the particularity of a particular object. This particular computer monitor is going to be pretty different from any other. But at the same time, we need to use concepts to think. It just is how we work. So we've got to find a way to refigure the way we use concepts. Okay? At the same time, we've got to critique them. Because the way identity thinking works is it makes us think in these systematic terms. We have this idea of the spell, which I think is a wonderfully evocative phrase, which essentially describes the way in which our ideas about how things ought to be mesh on to how things actually are. We really want the world to be nice and easy to understand, and there's very good reasons why we want to do that, because when we were living in caves in the Stone Age, and there were saber-toothed tigers hanging around, you don't want to go mucking around with postmodern relativistic categories of thinking. You want to know, is it going to eat me? How can I stop it from eating me? And that's how we start, right? This drive for self-preservation, for control over nature, for mastery, has led us into this mess. So what we do is we exclude everything that is not relevant. We exclude the heterogeneous. We try and make everything homogenous, safe, sanitized, controlled. Now this actually doesn't do us any good because it turns back on us. What is heterogeneous in us becomes excluded, controlled, so on, so forth. Think about Marx, um, commodity fetishism, this idea that what we do, what we end up doing under the logic of capitalism is we see things primarily in terms of their exchange value that has an effect on the person as well. That transforms them into the bearer of labor power, a commodity. So, this is what Adorno is offering us. Here's the problems. Firstly, the problem of grounding the critique. Adorno has a negative method. It defines him. His biggest book is called Negative Dialectics. He's not a very positive chap. Um, truth, on this view, can only be accessed through critique. It can never be given positively in concepts because concepts are incomplete. And truth is presumably not incomplete. But Adorno doesn't just want to critique. Adorno also wants to help us move beyond it. 
And he has these ideas of how we might do so, non-identity, non-conceptuality, constellations, the body, all of these things that I'm not going to talk about in any detail, but they all fall outside the system. So you want there to be some sort of foundation for them. You want there to be some sort of epistemic warrant, to use a term from analytic philosophy that I've got no idea if I'm using right or not. Um, but we can't have that <coughs> system based in critique. Now Adorno does try and address this issue. It's intimations towards a positive foundation in embodied experiential knowledge, in our experience of things. But he can't positively articulate that because it's always vulnerable to critique. So it's left at intimations. The other problem is action. How do we do things? There's a lot of things about Adorno and praxis. The one I'm going to focus on is this idea that if we just act without thinking about it, without reflecting on what we're doing, we can end up just reproducing the same logic that we're trying to oppose. We end up keeping identity thought or whatever, you know, whatever our ends may be, it can come back anyway. Look at the Soviet Union for an example. But again, to do things right, we'd need to know what the alternative is. And Adorno, as we've just seen, can't always give that to us. So this is where Shaler comes in. Okay? Adorno doesn't have much time for Shaler. Uh, he did read him. Generally, he just dismisses him in little short sentence asides, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. But he doesn't really engage with him in any detail. I'm saying maybe he should have. Because what Shaler gives us is a positively articulated account of the human being, which, incidentally, is broadly compatible with what Adorno is trying to do. How does he do this? So, without giving a biography of him, this is work from towards the end of his life, and Shaler never really manages to develop this in much detail. Um, unfortunately, he died before he was able to articulate it systematically. The general idea of philosophical anthropology is uh, to find out who we are and where we fit in. That's what that quote says. Okay, so there's this basic structure in Shaler then of the human being, and this is this idea of life and spirit, two components of us. So we start on the level of life. This includes things like instincts, drives, up to intelligent behaviours, okay? Really quite intelligent behaviours. So instincts and drives are pretty straightforward, I think. Um, you can find these in basic forms, Shaler says, right down to plants and microbes, because they all want to, at the end of the day, eat, reproduce, survive. What's quite interesting is this inclusion of intelligent behaviours on this list, okay? Shaler thinks that there are aspects of our behaviour which are not conscious, they're not in the realm of spirit, and more on that in a minute, but they are goal-directed, 
they are or can be novel solutions to problems. They can be, in short, intelligent. So think about octopuses for a minute. Um, Peter Godfrey Smith wrote a very good book about octopuses and intelligent behavior um, very recently. They're very clever animals. They can unscrew the lids of jars. If you put them in a jar, they can unscrew it from the inside, some of them. don't know why you put one in a jar. <laughs> there was an octopus in Germany who worked out that if he squirted water at a light bulb, it caused the entire thing to fuse. So he kept on doing it. There was another octopus that recognized people that they didn't know and squirted ink at them every time they walked past. They're very willful. Um, but what they're not is conscious, we don't think. We don't think they have this ability to think of themselves as selves, to reflect, or any of that. So maybe he's right. Okay, here's another thing. Here's a couple of quotes. What this means is that there is no such thing as a pure sensation. In the Husserlian sense, I suppose, of just experience, because there's always meanings, there's always goals, there's always things attached to the sort of objects we perceive in our environment. So this sort of spiel of text is all about uh, an ape who wants some fruit and goes off and finds a tool for some fruit. And the idea is that essentially they can see, right, that's fruit in my environment. Here's a stick that I can use to knock it off the tree. It's doing all of this without being consciously aware of it. So we're always entangled with our environment before we're conscious. Okay? And in fact, we know the oh dear, that's gone wrong, hasn't it? <laughs> um, never buy a cheap clicker. We know the world is real before um, even this level, before intelligent behaviours, because for Shayla, the reality of the external world comes in the resistance to our drives. Okay, this all sounds very Freudian. At a basic level, we know there's a real world out there because when we're hungry, we're not immediately fed. If it was all just in our head, presumably, we'd get hungry and then some food would appear and we'd stuff it in our faces and we'd be happy. Maybe one day, if our computers get advanced enough, we all will live those lives and it'll be terrible. But... This is the basic point. This gives us an experience of reality before even this level of meaningful interaction with the environment. Even the little nematode worms have an experience of reality on this idea. This is interesting, okay, because this suggests that there's a degree of subjective experience, intelligence, before reason, before rational, considered, self-reflective behavior. So spirit, um, and he means by spirit an expansion of the Greek word reason, he tells us. It's happened again. I'm just going to stop using it. It's something extra. It's on top. It originates in the sublimation of drives, Freud and Nietzschean point, and is a sort of self-reflection which lets us move beyond our immediate surroundings. We become creatures who have world on this view. We're not 
any more limited to just where we are in the environment. We can think about the future, the past, alternate realities, like our sci-fi fans. And we can form concepts, ideas. Okay. More than this, we can objectify ourselves. We can think about and control our vital processes. We can think of ourselves as unified people. What we can't do is objectify spirit. There's some sort of core here which we can't ever grasp under a concept. And he says this is because Spirit is pure actuality. It is only because it does. Okay. So, what does this mean? It means all we try to do is move beyond our immediate environment think about things apart from that, move beyond it, transcend it. We're eternal Fausts, says Shayla. Now, this means that we're caught in the situation between both this capacity to abstract and move beyond the world and this position where we're innately tied to our material reality. So there's a split between our desire to move beyond, to control the world, if we're going back to Adorno, and our enmeshment with it. And here's something else. Because we're never wholly objectifiable, the point of our relating to others is to understand them without making them our object. So this is a further difficulty because we understand everything else by objectifying it. This all comes together in account of action. Because we encounter the world and resistance to drives, the reality of it, perception is meaningful, but we also have the power to abstract away. Okay. okay. This, this, this is a temporary disengagement, and it happens through the inhibition of drives. We can temporarily choose to ignore all of our drives, try and move beyond them. But we can never really escape our material conditions. So this results in this idea of action, I think. We always act upon the world. We always try and change it, make it better suited to us. Make it our object. But we also have this demand to not objectify people, not just because it's impossible, because it's ethically bad, okay? And we should act to promote people's well-being, okay? In ways guided by their personhood, to understand them as people. And this is something he talks about at some length in his book, The Nature of Sympathy, this is a bit earlier on. Um, so what we have here is this sort of normative idea how we ought to relate to people. So let's go back to Adorno for a minute. Adorno likes drives as well. He thinks they're great. And he has this similar idea here in his own moral life theory, this idea that 
we have this ethical impulse, this feeling before rationality. In fact, it's only ethical because it is before rationality. I can talk about that more during the questions if you want to know why. Um, this sense of solidarity with suffering bodies. These drives for Adorno disrupt our sense of self as identical, wholly rational, self-mastering beings. Now, he thinks that's a good thing, okay? And I think Shayla does too, okay? This is just a recap on why his account is underdeveloped. So what does Shayla do? He gives us a concrete embodied human being always acting in the world, entwined with the world and with the other person. I'm suggesting this could help Adorno. Because what grounds critique? That was a problem for him. Now, Shayla's got this pretty well-developed account of a human being. I think it's sympathetic to Adorno. And this could give a positive foundation. Now, what Shayla's not doing, what I suggested Adorno needs, is this foundation based on experience and experiential knowledge. However... Adorno breaks that rule as well. It's unavoidable because we need to use concepts. What Shader is doing is giving us an account which is based on experience ultimately. It's still vulnerable to critique, as every statement is, unfortunately. But it refers to a truth which is non-conceptualizable and non-conceptualized. Shader's subject is simply more substantial than Adorno's is. Which gives us an understanding of how and why our social systems can degrade us. And he has a normative guide to praxis, which could help us to understand how we ought to relate to others and to the world politically. So, that's about it. This is, as I said from my thesis, um, please tell me if it's nonsense. I need to know. <laughs> Better not to find out after you've hanged me. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs>